Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to the end of the book. Hear now the word of the Lord. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful epistle you have given us in Second Peter. Lord, I pray that your word, which is the truth, would edify us today, that we would see hope in your word, that we would see mercy in your word, that we would see truth, we would see your coming. Lord, may you be magnified, lifted up. May you be exalted. May your deeds be made known in the preaching of your word. For your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So my... Uh, wife and I have three children. One of them is in the little nursery room up there. She is almost 14 months. Her name is Karis. And you know what happens around this time with little babies. They start to attempt to walk. She has, she has um, scooted. She's done the army crawling. She's actually lifted herself up from that, from her tummy, and now she's on her knees and kind of crawls, has a little hitch, it looks like, with her back leg, um, just because she wasn't used to doing that that way. She stands up on the coffee table. Well, not on the coffee table. She stands up by using the coffee table as her guide, and she walks around it, you're familiar with this, right? But she can't stand on her own just yet. We have her, we hold her hands and she walks to us and got a little instrument or tool or something, you know, toy that she stands up on the wall. She walks with the aid of some other person or thing because she lacks one thing right now, which she will gain in due time, Lord willing, and that is Stability. She's, wa- she's wobbling and waffling and another W word, wavering, until she is stable. And soon she will be. And that's what the theme of this text is about. It's about stability and finding that stability in the scriptures. And as we finish this year-long study... Long, arduous year, consisting of five sermons in Second Peter. 
as we finish this, we will see from Peter the relevance and the importance of being stable in the Scriptures. Last week, you might remember that in verse 15, Peter tells us to count the um, patience of our Lord as salvation. The Lord is going to come. He will, he will fulfill his promise of his coming. You can count on that. You can bank on that reality. He's not slow to fulfill that promise, but he is waiting. And he has decreed from before the foundation of the world that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be drawn to himself and be saved. And it's for our good that he is waiting. So we're supposed to count his patience as salvation. That's what we saw last week. And as we finish this letter, Peter now brings in someone to support his position. Someone who agrees with this claim. Peter's not saying that it's just me that's saying this, that the Lord's going to come and that he's not slow to fulfill his promise. I'm not the only one saying this. There's someone else. And it's not just some random guy either. But it is Paul. It is our Paul. Our beloved Paul. Peter and his listeners have in common this relationship with Paul. Paul knew his readers. Peter knew them. They all knew each other. And he's saying that he is our beloved Paul. He's not saying that this is the Apostle Paul. He's not saying, uh, I'm throwing all the apostolic weight of Paul here in this letter, and you need to believe this. No, this is Paul, our Paul and our beloved Paul, someone for whom you have great affection, someone for whom I have great affection, and someone who has great affection for you and for me. This is Paul. And he has written of similar things to you that I've written. He says this in verse 16, that Paul had written with wisdom, and he does this in all the letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Well, what letter does Peter have in mind that Paul wrote to them? the same audience that Peter wrote to. As you can imagine, the identity of this letter has been no small matter of debate. Virtually every New Testament letter has been put on the table that Peter wrote to, or that Paul wrote to Peter's audience. Could it be Romans? Could it be 2 Corinthians? 1 Thessalonians? Philemon even? Philippians? No, certainly not Philemon. My money is on Galatians. Because this letter, Second Peter, was written to the region of Galatia. And Paul wrote to Galatians. Of course, we don't need to worry ourselves about the identity of this letter that Peter has in mind, that Paul wrote to Peter's own audience, because Peter's not specific about it, and it's really not a, an overly important issue. But also because Peter says that Paul writes of similar themes in all of his letters. So, Peter's letter, 2 Peter, has written about the deity of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior and God. And he's written about the coming day of the Lord, 
He's written about giving us assurance that the Lord will preserve the righteous and that the unrighteous will be judged. Peter has written about how the gospel frees us from enslavement to sin, that there would be false teachers among us. Paul wrote about those things too. So you could virtually pick any letter from Paul. Because they're writing about the same stuff. Why would they, why would they do that? Well, because they have the same origin. Both letters of Peter and all of Paul's letters find their origin in God. They come from the same source. They're God's letters to Peter's audience and Paul's audience and, and us. And so Peter has four things to say about Paul's writings. The first thing he says in verse 15 is that Paul wrote according to the wisdom given him. Paul did not write from his own created wisdom. He didn't he didn't he certainly didn't write from folly. His writings were not are not filled with foolishness. You read Paul's writings and you recognize there's wisdom in there. Peter recognized that he has wisdom in these writings. But this wisdom doesn't come from Paul. We see here it was given to him. This wisdom is not his own self-creation. It is from God. It's a gift of God and God alone. God of all wisdom, our most wise triune God. James would echo this theme of wisdom being given from God alone in James 1 when he says, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God. God will give graciously. He will give liberally. He will give richly to those who are in trials, who need the wisdom that only God can give. Paul also in Ephesians would pray that the Ephesians would have a spirit of wisdom given to them by God. Paul knows that if the Ephesians are going to have any hope of wisdom, it must come from God. It's not going to be found by the, wiz, by, by the Ephesians. It's not coming from the Ephesians, it's coming from God. And so when Peter says that Paul wrote according to the wisdom given him, this is an indirect way of saying that Paul's writings are Scripture. Paul wrote wise things. Only, wisdom only comes from God. Therefore, Paul's writings are from God. They are Scripture. They're God-breathed, inspired. Of course, some people are unpersuaded by this, and they think that Paul's writings are not Scripture. If it doesn't have the red letters, it's not God's Word, right? It's common, um, especially uh, with modern-day attacks. They say, well, that's just Paul who said that, and Jesus never mentioned this issue or that issue, and so... I don't have to listen to Paul on the matter. Well, for those who are believing that, Peter gives no wiggle room in verse 16. No way out. He says, as he, that's Paul, does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
The second thing that Peter says about Paul's writings is clearly they are scripture. The first reason is, the first thing he says is an indirect allusion to the, the nature of scripture, Paul's writings. Paul wrote with wisdom. But here, it's very clear that Peter is equating Paul's letters with the scriptures. What scriptures does he have in mind? Well, the Old Testament, of course. That is what was being written, or that was what had been written at that time. And the Old Testament writings were not competing for acceptance in Peter's day. They had been long accepted for centuries. In fact, at the end of, well, the last book depends on the canon, if it was our Protestant canon or the Jewish canon, but Malachi or Second Chronicles, at the end of this, you have these 400 years of silence. And in that 400 years, called the intertestamental period, during that time, people recognized that there hadn't been a prophet who had spoken. That they were looking forward to another day when a prophet would speak. That even those apocryphal writings that some churches accept, they themselves recognized they weren't scripture. And so Peter is saying that Paul's writings are at the same level as the Old Testament writings. This is one apostle affirming the apostolic nature, the God-breathed nature of, of the writings of another apostle in the same century. Peter's not the only one who does this. Paul does it. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is making this claim in verse 17. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. He is saying that pastors need to be paid well. Now, this is not a sermon on exhorting you to pay your pastor well. <laughs> but that's his claim. So on what basis... Does he make this claim? Well, he says in verse 18, For the scripture says, so he's grounding his argument in scripture. This is equivalent to, thus saith the Lord. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Well, that's in Deuteronomy. Very appropriate use. Old Testament to affirm his writing here in the New Testament. But he's not done. He says, and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, where in that, where in the Old Testament is that? It's nowhere. It's in Luke and it's in Matthew. It's in Luke 10 and in Matthew 10. He's quoting some scripture that had been written, or at least some oral testimony that found its way in Luke and in Matthew. So here we have another apostle, another messenger from God who is confirming the status of another New Testament book. This is very early recognition of the New Testament letters. This flies right in the face of all those who would argue that Nobody knew the word of God until Constantine came around 
And then the Council of Nicaea, Constantine, was, he wanted to settle this debate in 300 and say, okay, this is the New Testament, here are the books, everything else is not Scripture. That's just historically inaccurate, it's not even, not even right. The people knew God's Word from the very beginning. They recognized it. Because God's sheep know His voice. When God speaks, they know it. They didn't have to wait for some supposed convert to Christianity to determine and tell them what would be God's word. It's just like if you were to get a letter that didn't have a name on it, and you read it, and you're like, wow, this, this really sounds like my mom is writing to me. And you look at the words that she uses, the things that she knows about you, the affection that you could tell that's in those in those words, this is how my mom writes. I know it. This is I, she, It doesn't say her name, love mom, but I know this is my mom. Certainly not my dad trying to pass off as my mom. Not somebody else. This is my mom. Likewise, we recognize God's word when we read it, when we hear it. Peter knew that Paul's writings were scripture. The third thing that Peter says about Paul's writings is that there are some difficult concepts, some hard-to-understand things. And I, can, I just laugh at this. Peter, who are you to be talking about this? Do you not know just earlier you mentioned some hard-to-understand things? Talking about heavens roaring and dissolving, being burned up. First Peter chapter 3, I mean, that's, that's a task for exegetes. With Jesus in the days of Noah... Uh, preaching to spirits in prison. Well, that's, what's that all about? Did he descend into hell? Or, or, and if he did, what does that mean? There's all kinds of crazy stuff in, in your letters, Peter. I don't understand fully what you're saying, Peter. But it's true. There are some things in Paul's writings that are difficult to understand, just like there are some things in Peter's writings. And I find comfort in this, and I hope you do too, that here we have... An apostle, one who had been given God's word to give to us, who finds in the writings of another apostle complex, confusing at times, especially since they lived in the same time. They didn't have that geographical distance that we have and that 2,000 years in between and that different cultural context. They didn't have that that we have. So this reminds us that, yes, God's message and his plan are clear to even the youngest of children. But there are some things that are in the text that are difficult to understand. We need to be open about that and honest. We shouldn't deceive our friends or ourselves that we have all the answers, that there are no difficulties in in the Bible. There certainly are. And this, hopefully, would spur us on to greater Bible study, personal Bible study. We should immerse ourselves in God's Word, pouring ourselves over. And what, what does this mean? Trying to compare it to, you know, look at the commentaries and, and study Bibles and look at the context in each of the letters and just figure out what it means. But it also means that we need to Engage in Bible study at the corporate level. Listen to God's word being preached. 
as your pastor brings you the word of God, or as your elders teach you the word at Sunday school, or in a midweek Bible study, or in a small group, or, or what have you. See what the history of the church has said about these texts. People who have far greater minds than, than our own, who have studied these texts. Sure, we won't have all the answers, but we'll have a better understanding as we study God, our, God's Word deeply. We shouldn't be afraid that these texts are difficult to understand. This is God's Word, and it's here for our good. All these things that have happened are written for our instruction, Paul would say. The fourth thing that Peter mentions about Paul's writings is that the ignorant and unstable twist the Scriptures. The ignorant are those who are untaught. They're unlearned. They just haven't exposed themselves long enough and well enough to the Word of God. And so they become incompetent interpreters of the Bible. They just don't, they just don't know enough. They haven't studied well enough. Think of uh, just an immature Christian, and this could be a recent convert or someone who has been a Christian for many years but just doesn't read God's Word well. You ask a person how, you know, what the Trinity is, and that person might end up committing heresy accidentally, of course. You ask them about two natures of Jesus, say, well, I thought he only had one nature. Active and passive obedience of Christ. We, and you talk to them about some things, they, they just don't know enough. They're just not taught enough. It needs, needs to take time. They need to study. And the unstable are mentioned here as well. These are people who might be well-educated, but they have neglected to see the whole picture of the Bible, the big narrative of Scripture. We saw this last week with the scoffers and their poor view of Scripture. They thought that the Lord would not come again. And their argument was because he hadn't come in judgment before. Peter reminded his listeners that God had, in fact, acted in history. And God had actually judged people during Noah's day. And so they're unstable. And Peter contrasts their being unstable, or he, I'm sorry, he uses the same word, unstable, in a previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 14, when he says that the false teachers are un, enticing unsteady souls, that they are preying on the weak. They're looking for those people who are not firmly rooted in the Word of God, that they might deceive them. That's what the false teachers are doing to those who are unsteady. And Peter contrasts the unsteady, the unstable, with the beloved, with those of us who have been established in the truth that we have. He says that we, the beloved, have been established. That's the same root, that's stable, that's stable. We have been established in this truth. And the ignorant and the unstable, contrary to the beloved, they twist the scriptures. They twist Paul's writings and they twist all of the scriptures. They're engaged in torturous Bible interpretation. They're perverting God's word. They're trying to treat God's word 
to say something that it actually doesn't say. Again, this was seen most recently in their claim that God wouldn't come because he hadn't come. Just like the ignorant in Peter's day and in Paul's day that twists the scriptures, we have that going on in our day as well. Examples abound, but a couple would suffice. 1 John 4.8, God is love. And so people take that passage, and you know where I'm going with this. God is love, so God favors love wherever it is found. Who cares how you define love? If it's love, according to your view, since God is love, he approves. Or taking Genesis 1, God created all things good. So he created me good. He didn't make any mistakes in me. And so what you might call sin is actually good. God approves of my lifestyle. God approves of the thoughts I have, the behaviors that I, that I show. Because he created me good. Again, they're, they're missing the big picture of the fall and the need for redemption. Perhaps the verse or the passage that's been most abused or twisted is Matthew 7. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Don't judge me for... Don't judge me at all for what I'm doing. And ironically, they're judging you for thinking that you're judging them. <laughs> but the Bible does say, judge with right appearances. How are you supposed to know a false prophet unless you examine, judge the fruit of that prophet or lack thereof? Jesus himself said, you will know them by their fruit. That takes judgment, not hypocritical judgment. Sinful judgment, but a, a discernment, a recognition of what is right and wrong. Sadly, Peter tells us this, this scripture twisting results in their own destruction. They the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter has encouraged us that the righteous will be preserved, that the unrighteous will be judged. But he warns us that those in the community of faith who do not put their trust in Christ, who twist the scriptures, will be destroyed. The scoffers are motivated by their own sinful lusts. We saw that last week as well. They are enslaved. They promise freedom, but they themselves are enslaved. Their present enslavement will end up one day to be their complete condemnation, utter destruction. Peter warned them about that. And these ignorant will no longer be able to say that they didn't know, they just didn't have enough knowledge, God, that they're not going to have an excuse. God says in Romans 1 that all are without excuse, that his nature is clearly perceived. Who he is and what he has done has been clearly perceived since creation. That all know God, and but they are suppressing that knowledge of God. They're exchanging the truth about God for a lie. So they don't have an excuse to say, we just didn't know. You just didn't give us enough evidence, God. 
The unstable will no longer be able to say that they now would like to build their houses on rock and not on sand. It'll be too late. The time will come and they will be ruined forever. Because ideas have consequences. If you think that God is not holy or that God doesn't care about how you live your life, or if you think God's not coming back to judge, you're going to live a different way. You're going to live in sin and utter rebellion against your Creator. And that lifestyle, which stems from those false beliefs, not having the full picture or having it but rejecting it, is going to result in your destruction. That's what the unstable do. They twist the Scriptures. Well, how do the beloved view the Scriptures? Verse 17 is a sober warning to us. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. We know this beforehand. We've been told. We, would, we looked at the predictions of the prophets and apostles. Peter tells us to, rem- to remember that. We see in Scripture that there will be false teachers, that people will twist the Word of God. You see it in, in your own day. We know this beforehand. This knowledge is useful. Ignorance is not always bliss, especially when future judgment is at stake. So Peter is telling us to take this foreknowledge, this knowing beforehand what is going to be, take this knowledge and use it as a cause to be committed, committed to Christ, committed to his teachings, committed to the character, godly character, that represents someone who has been holy and set apart. That's what he wants us to do with this knowledge. We're to take care that we aren't carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the lawless people. He wants us to guard ourselves. He wants us to actively take apart, take take part in examining what people say. Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When you hear someone speaking, be like the Bereans and examine that. Is that what the Word of God says? Is that consistent with what my God has told me already? If it isn't, I'm rejecting it out of hand. But if it's consistent, I'll receive it. It's true. Yes, this is, this is God's will. This is what God has said. We are unable to be firm and to be committed to Christ if we are as forgetful and self-deceived as these lawless people, these ignorant and unstable. Indeed, by giving in to these lawless people and their false beliefs, we are losing our stability. We are losing that steadfastness, that firm footing that we have. Peter tells us we have been established in the truth. We stand on the truth. Our foundation is the Word of God, as written in the Old and New Testaments by the prophets and apostles. God has spoken clearly 
and with all authority that comes with the triune God. As Hebrews 1 says, God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, who is the Word of God, is ultimately our foundation, our source of stability, the one upon whom we stand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. By standing on the rock of Christ and His truth, we will be firm. We will be steady. We will be stable. We won't be swayed by every new thought that tempts us. Well, how about you think Jesus a little bit differently from, from what the Bible says? We need to have a new perspective on Paul and what, how he views the doctrine of justification, how we are right before God. I want you to think a little bit differently this way. No, God hasn't spoken that way. God's beloved do not build their houses on sand but on the rock. We acknowledge with Peter, as he said earlier on in this letter, that no prophecy comes by the will of man. But men spoke. Men clearly did speak, but they did so from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit superintended this whole scripture writing process, and he used Peter's own vocabulary, the the needs of Peter's audience, his style of writing. He used that in one way, and he used Paul's in another, and Luke's in another, and And all of the writers of the Old and New Testament, God used all of those. Through men, they weren't robots. They used their own words, but they were the words that God, in some mysterious way, wanted them to use. The Holy Spirit carried them along to give us his inerrant and infallible word. And it's this commitment to the rock-solid word of God that will be the source of our growth. As Peter says in verse 18, he finishes it this way, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. At the start of this letter, Peter exhorts us to add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. How do we grow in these? How do we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because Peter doesn't want us to be ineffective or unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus, lest we fall. He wants us to be stable. We grow spiritually as the Word of God dwells within us richly, as we seek to know all of Christ in His Word, all that He has done, all that He is, as the Word of God abides in us and we abide in the Word of God, as we the branches abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, we grow. We will add to our faith all of those characteristics Our bodies need physical food. They will not grow if they don't have that. 
our spirits will not grow either. If we don't feed upon Christ by faith as we delve deeply in his word. I know of no one who has a steady and flourishing relationship with Christ who is growing in the grace and knowledge of his Lord and Savior Jesus, but who doesn't commit himself to reading God's word and reading it daily and reading it well, not just to say, okay, I did my Bible reading for the day, but to do so devotionally, seeing our need for a Savior, seeing how holy God is and how much we need Him because of our sin and our wickedness. That if we're going to have any hope of grace, any source of strength, it's going to come from God. And see how the passage applies to us. See how we are like the, this king or that judge or, what, or whatever it is. Because Sadly, the exact opposite happens. People fall. They fumble. They give up their commitment to Christ because they're not grounded in His Word. Scoffers come along or people with tempting beliefs come along. The LDS come along. The Jehovah's Witnesses come along. Western form of Buddhism comes along. Liberal philosophy and theology comes along. Scientology comes along, or whatever it is, and sadly, people, because they're not rooted in Christ, in His Word, they go away. I saw this recently, this last week, on Facebook. So many professing Christians are now on this bandwagon of homosexual marriage, because hashtag love wins. All for the name of love. If, if, it's, if it's in love, it's, it's okay. And so they're for these people being married. When what they should be for is for the gospel. And say, God can save you from that sin. As Paul would say, such were some of you. But you're washed. You're cleansed. You're sanctified. Justified. And by calling evil good, they deny Sinners, the chance of hope and grace and what true love is. All this because they're not committed to the infallible, inerrant, sure word of God. So Peter's exhortation to his people is my exhortation to you. Be committed to God's word, his sure word, his authoritative, faultless word. And by it, you will grow in the strength and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.